Welcome to the Retro Rejects Podcast with your hosts, NES Complex and Vintage Video Game Geek. And welcome back to another episode of Retro Rejects, the podcast where Vintage and I annoy each other. No, where we love each other. The podcast where everything is daisies and roses and happiness and sunshine. Today is August 17th. 2014. For some reason, I was thinking 19 something. Maybe it's all this retroness, but it is a uh, 2014. Wh- who are you talking to exactly? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I just know that I was so dead and tired last episode that I thought maybe if I took like some adrenaline and B12 and drank like a six pack of Jolt, that maybe it would be a, a little bit better. Okay, well that's good because you you be that and I will be the tired person. Yeah, I just spent the past forty five minutes updating my Skype and then updating my Windows Seven. Very frustrated. You know what really help you and wake you up? What? You should play Glover. <laughs> just a nice uh, few hours with Glover on it. Now, how am I get, how am I going to record the podcast and play Glover <laughs> at the same time? You know, maybe we got to try that sometime. <laughs> so, it's a little bit later than we usually start. It's actually past 10 p.m. over here on the right coast, but as I was telling Chris before the show, I have jury duty tomorrow. So, I get to go at 8:15 to the county courthouse. And sit in a room and maybe get picked to be on a jury. Although, now, let me ask you. Yeah. Because when you get that summons in the mail, a lot of people freak out like, oh, crap. Like, what is your initial response? Because I'm a teacher and it really doesn't phase me either way. If I go, it's fun. If I don't, it's fine. I've, yeah. I've been on a jury before. It was pretty fun, actually. Well, I've never done it, and this is actually my first one that I've ever got in my whole life. So I actually kind of want to do it and to see what it's all about. This is the first time you've ever been summoned? Yes. Never got one before in my life. I have been summoned ten times. No joke. Well, I think it has something to do with the fact that, you know, where you live, there's like a lot more crime. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, so it's that part of the show where we talk about stuff that we've done recently, and so I'm going to start by talking, it's been a while actually, but Aaron invited me, Aaron from Retro Liberty invited me out to The Grid, and the, the things that I did at The Grid have already been on YouTube for a while. I, I did two things. I was on the lowdown with Elizabeth. She did a story about piracy in, with video games in Britain and how they're kind of looking the other way. And so because I do a British accent and she for some reason think that's, thinks that that's really awesome, she wanted me to come down. So I did a little segment where I pretended to be British and talked about piracy. And then I also did with Aaron a, a grid chat about the best NES games of all time. Um, what is the grid gaming? Can you can you kind of take? Well, a I was step gonna get in. And, yeah. No, I was gonna get into that. Okay. I was all right. saying, you know, people may have already seen the videos, but yeah. Well, what was cool about it is, you know, it's one thing to know that our friends are doing this thing, but when you go to the actual building, you know, you go up the elevator and and you, you turn the corner. It's not just this little suite. You know, there is a a desk in a massive foyer. There's a receptionist there that greets you and has to summon and buzz in. Okay, we're doing this as a video Skype here. And every once in a while, Vintage is waving at me, I guess, to flag me down so we can interrupt. Yeah. What is the grid gaming? 
I'm getting to that. Okay, okay, all right. Trust me, it's in the story. I, I already thought well about I'm trying to paint the picture. Sorry, man. sorry, sorry. No, it's cool. Okay. So you go in there, there's the she called up uh Aaron and uh, had him come down the hall and he has this little pass. He has to wave in front of a sensor. Stop waving at me. I have a question. It sensor. It's okay, not what? it's not what is the grid game? What? So the girl <laughs> at the desk. Was yes. that the girl that does all the funny voices? I don't think that she is part of the gaming section at all. Oh, she's just the general yeah. building right. person. She yeah, that's what I'm saying. This thing is huge. The gaming aspect is one narrow part of the entire network got it got it so she buzzes aaron he comes he waves his little pass in front of the thing by the way there's giant glass doors and you know massive desk and coffee and she's like would you like some coffee and you know all this stuff everything about it is so legit and so like high class professional it kind of floored me so uh aaron comes we're walking down the hall and in the hall there's pictures and posters hanging on on the sides, one of them, you know, like the entertainment people and the the hosts of the entertainment section and the hosts of the sports section. And then I see this poster with these two goofy looking people. It's Aaron and Elizabeth, and Aaron's like eating a video game or something. Uh, <laughs> but it's they're the the grid gaming section. And just seeing all these personalities that are part of this network, uh, it was interesting to see. They're just one part of it. So are but, there other grid things? There are, but I don't know uh, how far along they've developed. I don't okay. know where they're at. I, I know that what they are doing, what Aaron and Elizabeth are doing, is is really more priming the pumps for when it really finally launches in full. You know, the team that they have is is sort of minimal right now. The space that they have, like when I was there, there were maybe ten to fifteen employees that were working various aspects of editing or or finding stories, getting the news together. But the space could fit probably 150 people, mm-hmm. and so when this thing launches in proper in mass, it's going to be um, it's going to be very very big. Uh, it was quite astounding though. And then you know, Aaron gave us the tour. He showed us the the main set where everything's filmed, and then he showed us another green screen room where they could do full-body green screen effects. Uh, he showed me the, the uh, I don't know what you call it. Uh, you know where all the screens are, and they're doing live cuts. What do you call that? Control room? Sure, like the director's you know Well, the producer. Or something. I, yeah, the, the producer of the show sat in there, and he gave us, like, wireless mics, and he was kind of, you know, telling us things in our ear as we recorded. You know, they, they had a lot of issues with my shirt. I kept having to change my shirt. and they had What? Like, well, I was wearing a Hurley shirt, which I ended up wearing in the final video, but um, they weren't sure about the legality of me wearing something with that logo. Oh, I'm sure the uh, Hurley uh, establishment would, would be very unhappy with that. Yeah, I think it worked out. We, we sat at the desk. We did the piece. It took us about 15 minutes. By the time we walked back to Aaron's computer... All of the major cuts had been done. They were done on the fly as it was recorded. So uh, all Aaron had to do was put some of the lower thirds on there with the titles, um, drop in the intro and some uh, gameplay footage. It was so fast. Excuse me. Excuse me. Lower thirds. That's when you have like the, the name at the bottom of the screen, like NES Complex. What is this like? Industry speak? No, that. Well, that's what they call it in Final Cut. Got it. And all video editors. <laughs> <laughs> Except for mine that's like 10 years old. Did you meet we, the interns? Yeah, I met all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Are there, are there just two? Um, I met 
Taylor and oh crap, this is bad. Josh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I met Taylor and Josh. I met um, one of the other editors, Felix, um, Elizabeth's friend uh, Diana, who uh, she's working on the stories a lot. They were working. They were throwing stories back and forth, and I I, I kind of helped with the spell check and. <laughs> No, it it was really fun to see how the machine kind of worked. Like they got stuff together very quickly and it just kind of nice. showed me what could happen if you had a permanent setup for filming and editing videos. You could get stuff cranked out really fast. Yeah. Well, and by the way, thanks for mentioning the podcast on the show. I don't know if you mentioned it or if it was part of the lower thirds. No, I did both. I specifically okay. told Aaron when he was putting the lower thirds on there. I think he put it on there, too. So, that... So, so, so Chris. What? What is the grid gaming? So, from what I said, you can't, like, decipher what the grid gaming is? I'm still not getting it. Can you can you just the, describe it for me, like in sh- in very short, maybe a few sentences of what it is? The grid gaming is one component of the grid everything. The grid network. The grid network. The gaming section is just one part of it. At this moment, they are uploading videos on YouTube, okay. sort of Good. priming it, Good. getting into a rhythm, but. The ultimate goal is, um, and I don't know anything about funding or how that is working with investors, but there is a point in time when it will launch in full, and it, and I don't exactly know what that looks like, but I believe that it's an app, right. first and foremost. Right. Um, they have a, a goal of having a million users. There's a you know big old sign in the cubicle office space, you know, something about getting to a million. It's a nice round number. It is a very nice round number. That's why I have that in my room up here for subscribers. <laughs> yeah. It's a good goal. Yeah. But I think between all of the different facets and if they get the funding that they're talking about, I think it's very, very likely. Well, good luck to Aaron and absolutely and Elizabeth and the rest of them. And, and we we're very happy for him. All right. You and I have each seen uh, two which I think are probably some of the last, if not the last, summer blockbusters of 2019. We're going to do spoiler-free reviews because we haven't seen each other's movie. So I'm going to go first. And uh, I saw Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, Took a trip up to Michigan with the family to see my wife's family. And my brother-in-law was there. And so we went out and saw Guardians. And I just thought it was really good. They took something that was so obscure, you know, this like ragtag group of these aliens, you know, that takes place in this unknown part of the galaxy. And they just like fleshed out the characters, the story, and everything just flowed so well together. Like they casted it perfectly. It was funny. The timing of everything, the action, the jokes, you know, there was character development. I mean, any way you look at it, there are very, very, like, few, if if not any, plot holes. I can't even think of one right off the mm. top of my head. Um, and you know that's a big thing with me, is, like, plot holes and things not making sense. Like, for the most part, it was a very well-done, well-put-together movie that I highly recommend that you see in the theater. And I'm also going to be buying us on Blu-ray, like, 
day one when it comes out. I, wow. I really enjoyed it. And it's got the guy, the, the, the guy that plays like Star Lord. I forget the guy's name off the top of my head, but I think he was in like Parks and Rec. And he was, <laughs> I don't know. I never watched that show. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but he, I do know for certain that he was the voice of Emmett in the Lego movie, but anyway, it was really good. And then the other, um, the girl that plays Gamora is actually, um, Zoe Saldana, right. And and she's from, you know, star, the new star Trek movies, right? Yeah. To sum it up. Great movie. Um, I wouldn't say it was the greatest movie ever made, but, um, it's definitely very good. And Marvel scores again with guardians of the galaxy you know we ought to start doing here what since we talk about movies so often we should come up with a little um like i don't know like a five star but maybe not stars we should come up with a little rating system Eh. five rejects (laughs) (laughs) and that's good Uh. oh come on all right what about yourself all right, so I, I think it's pretty clear what the movie I saw was, and I just got back actually a couple hours ago from seeing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So where to begin? You know, I think obviously everyone everyone out there sort of immediately hates on this <laughs> just by virtue of uh, Michael Bay's association with it. Right. And it definitely has all of the traditional Bayisms, Ugh. like heavy, heavy action, maybe, you know, action at the detriment of plot and character development. Um, it has uh, the even the action itself, the way that it's filmed, uh, it's almost too close and sort of a blur. So you don't really get to appreciate some of the moves you might see in, I don't know, say uh, movies like Hero or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where where fighting is elegant and awesome. But you know, it has all these typical uh, Michael Bayisms. It even has Megan Fox, which I guess is a Michael Bayism. Yeah, it's tough because I, I think that there are different types of moviegoers. And clearly this movie had a lot of people go see it. It made, I think, already – I don't know actually how much it made. I thought I, I saw somewhere it said $93 million. Um, Is that not right? I, I don't know. I'm just shaking my head because I hate this idea of this movie. I hate well, I'm gonna s- Bay. I stop, wish I could stop, punch stop, him in the face. Stop. Stop, yeah. stop it. Okay. <laughs> I will say – the move, the one thing I feel like the movie did really well is capture, not develop, but capture the distinct personalities of the four turtles. Yeah, um, I've heard uh, that. I have heard that that the that the part where they showed the turtles was actually good, but that there wasn't enough of it. You no, know, like, but seriously, yeah, no, Raphael, I think, glows more than most. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah, and that's always been sort of a problem, like, in my mind. I, they've tried to do things with Raphael, like, he's just pouting in the background. But in this case, he's not pouting. Yeah. He just is more unsure mm-hmm. of himself and of them and, and how they all will work together, that sort of a thing. And Leonardo's sort of, like, coming into his own as a leader, where maybe they're not all sure that they can follow him. Why should he be the leader? I think a lot of us who grew up with the the early Turtles cartoons and the early films are not happy with the look. But I have to say, having saw it, it did fade away. I wasn't so freaked out by the way they looked. By the end, I wasn't thinking about it the whole time. In fact, when I got back here, I went and watched like the trailer for the original 1990 TMNT movie. And I was thinking, if, if they released a movie where they looked like that today, we would all hate it also. Oh, yeah. I don't really know how you design the turtles and make everyone happy. Um, they went for more of an orcish, 
a lot more human look and they're really tall and really buff in a way that they haven't been traditionally. Maybe you shrink them down a little bit. I don't really know about the design. Yeah. But you're not going to make anyone happy. No matter what you choose, people are going to be frustrated. Well, I think they looked kind of like really roided out and kind of extreme. Well, especially Raphael. I mean, they actually do have a different model. They're not like like in the, the movie or cartoon. They're just cookie cutter, just a different mm-hmm. color right. headband. How do you make them look to please everybody? So did the, you like the movie? Well, I'm getting to that. Okay. The other problem is the origin story, which they kind of completely threw out. <laughs> they came up with a whole different origin story. And, and the whole plot of the movie is connected sort of to their origin story. And it almost seems to me like they came up with a plot. And in order to service the plot, they created an origin story. They wanted to have something to do with, ha- with the, the, you know, the mutagen in their blood. Mm-hmm. And so they came up with this whole plot. And then they redid the origin story so that it would help the plot, which is crap in my opinion. I think the idea, like, it always captured my imagination, the idea of some weird substance that a human and an animal touches and it merges them together into one thing. There's a lot of fun that can be have, had with that. Now, maybe it had to be redone in some degree but uh, for believability, but look, honestly, this whole thing is not believable. Six-foot turtles, you know, they, they played light about that quite a bit, about how ridiculous that sounds. So overall, did I like it? I would say if I was giving it um, a rating, I would probably be somewhere like 50 or 60%, you know, like there, the action at times was fun, but overall, I mean, there was no plot, nothing that gripped you, no character development, none of those moments where they're just sitting around talking. Uh, in fact, I can only think of one moment where I felt like there was character development, one spot, and that sucks. Now, you're not, you don't care about anybody. You never care about the characters except maybe at that one point. Now, why do you propose this five-star system and then you proceed to give the rating of like a percentage? <laughs> you say well, 50 maybe to 60%. Yeah. Just to, just to screw with you. Yeah. Okay. Well, well I was thinking three stars, but then I was thinking maybe that's a little too generous. <laughs> Um, would you say it, it's worth the price of admission to a theater, or would you recommend people wait for it to come out on Blu-ray uh, and rent it at the Red Box, which is what I'm going to be doing? Uh, you know, if you just want to go out and do something with the kids, I think that it's fine. My kids didn't know the difference. To them, it was just fun. Right. Um, so it just depends on why you're going. If you're going because you like the Turtles of yesteryear, then I wouldn't, you know, yeah, wait. Wait for Netflix. <laughs> Well, if you're an extremely like bitter, critical individual like myself, then you probably shouldn't go see it. You would definitely hate it. <laughs> there is no question you would hate it. If you didn't like Spider-Man 2, this is several notches below Sp- Spider-Man 2, I would say. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But interestingly enough, I have heard a lot of people who really enjoyed this. A lot, of, Especially people who didn't grow up with our generation of Ninja Turtles, but some of the later Nickelodeon stuff. They think it's fantastic. Yeah, well, let's. You also have down here the toys, so you want to work yeah. that in. Yeah, I thought about that. You know, interestingly, um, and I didn't think about this, but over the summer, I had uh, I was building the shelves for my games, and I decided to put up some of my toys as well from when I was a kid. So I have a lot of Transformers, and um, I didn't have Ninja Turtles, 
But growing up, those two toys were the toys for me. Transformers, that, that was a very formative time. And Ninja Turtles, that was like the middle school era. Those were the last toys I played with. That's when you start getting embarrassed. You don't want to tell your friends you're playing toys mm-hmm. with toys anymore. But it was Ninja Turtles for me. And I, had, I think I sold them at a yard sale a long time ago. So I kind of wanted to get them back. And I saw an auction on eBay. And I got all of the major figures with all of their weapons intact. And In fact, it had uh, you know, a lot of the items and weapons were still on the little wooden uh, tree, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Accessory tree. But they, you know, on, with Ninja Turtles, that tree was designed to look almost like a rack you, you would put your, the weapons on. But, you know, even like Michelangelo, notoriously, his nunchucks, there's a little thin piece of plastic. Notoriously, they break. But this had that even intact. So it was a really good, clean set. And there were nine figures, and I got it for 80 bucks shipped for nine vintage, original, complete, mint figures. Did you check and, the date? Like oh, the, they, they are. They you are. looked on their, like, yeah. foot or yeah. whatever they put the date. Okay. Yeah. And it's uh, the Four Turtles, April O'Neil, Rocksteady, A Foot Soldier, uh, Splinter, and Shredder uh, were all in this. And, oh, you need man, to get Bebop. I need Bebop, and I would, I've never had Krang. Not, I don't even know if I really want Krang, but Bebop and Casey Jones were uh, the other, and Baxter Stockman, those were the, the other three that I know I had as a kid that I don't now. Mm-hmm. I had pretty much all of them, the main ones. I had some of those yeah. weird jump the shark ones where Michelangelo push a button and he spins the nunchuck weird crap well yeah the reason why I say the thing about check the date is because uh, Toys R Us has come out with a re-release I think earlier and I think I feel like they've done this like a couple of times Um, but they did it most recently I think in early 2014 and they call it the they actually call it like the retro like turtle characters or something like that. And what they did is they re-released the 1988 molds and the packaging is like almost identical. Um, the figures are identical. The, the way that they have all the weapons and everything like that. I just picked up a few of them at Toys R Us last week. Oh, that's rad. It's pretty cool. I mean, I, I, I like you. I have the originals. I have the original turtles and I have them in the party wagon up here on my shelf (laughs) one of these days i'm gonna do a video of my toy collection everyone wants you to man you should just do it i'm gonna do it one of these days it's gonna happen (laughs) (sighs) in addition to the turtles i've been looking uh, into some more transformers and really the only one that i bought was skywarp i've been trying to get a star scream but every time i'm just not willing to go as as high as they want. I mean, people want $100 for the figure alone. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm so mad at myself. There was one that went up for buy it now for 50 bucks, and it was great. Mm-hmm. And I just waited a, one, like maybe an hour too long, and someone bid on it. Mm. And then um, I, I didn't end up getting in on the bidding. So I missed it. But uh, Starscream, I have actually pretty much all of the Decepticons, like the original ones. I'm missing Starscream and Ravage. And then with the, the Autobots, I've got missing maybe five of the mid-sized cars. I have mm-hmm. everything else. So I'm thinking about getting all those and displaying them up on the shelf as well, just filling in the gaps. Because that was huge for me. Yeah. yeah my Optimus Prime is, I, I believe, the only Transformer 
that was mine when I was a kid that I still have. That's cool. Uh, when my brother moved out, I took, uh, we made a deal. I gave him my Star Wars toys and he gave me his Transformer toys. Nice. As we never had duplicates between the two of us. So I still have a lot of his, Wheeljack and Sideswipe and Grimlock and all that. Yeah. But um, of mine, Optimus Prime, I was showing my son. Uh, we took him out and transformed him and, and we were looking at all the little bits like roller mm-hmm. and the trailer and little gas. You fill him up and stuff uh, that, that it still shoots him out. I was pretty amazed at how good a condition I kept him in for as much as I played with that. There's mm-hmm. like no chrome wear. The paint on the cab is still good. Well, you mentioned Grimlock and for all you like fans of him, uh, I saw something in the store where it was like a kind of like a then and now pack or Oh right. It was like it had the original G1 Grimlock and then it had the the crappy Transformers 4 Grimlock and it came in like one package for some ungodly amount of money. It <laughs> had the original Grimlock in it? Yeah. Yeah. It was wow. like a re-release of the original Grimlock. Which I think is cool. The new one, I think, looks like a bunch of crap. I know they've re-released Transformers many times. Reissues. Yeah. They have all these Japanese reissues of the Takara and Diclone originals. It's Yeah, it, it definitely could be a money pit, though. Mm. That's why I really look back just at that original insert that came. There's only 28 Transformers, and I'm close to having them all. That's awesome. So that's kind of why, like the tapes, I have all the tapes, I have all the little mini cars, it's just some of those middle ones. Mm-hmm. I don't have Ravage, but all the other tapes. I'll go to my next thing here. Um, I mentioned that I went to Michigan, and uh, which is also kind of the stomping grounds of the guys from Hard for Games on YouTube. And so when I go, I try to have a visit with them. Um doesn't happen every time, but I was able to hook up with Tony and his wife, Anna. And uh, last Monday, we did uh, breakfast together. We also went to a retro game store that just recently opened, I think, in the last year over there. It was called Retro Taku. Um, but it was a pretty cool store. Um, I picked up a couple Japanese games uh, exclusives. I got Thexter for the Famicom. Mm. which is kind of one of these, like, you know, you're like this robot, and I think you can turn into, like, a plane, and, you you know, you go through these caves and things. I saw a review of it a long time ago, and uh, I had always wanted to pick it up, and so I got that, and then I got... Wait, 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 wait. You're a robot and a plane? I think you're kind of like a Robotech guy. Oh, okay. You know, like, you can be a robot and transform into a plane. Well, that's and, what I was going to say. You yeah. You can transform. Like, wow. Imagine that. A Transformer game. Yeah. Which we never really got. Now, okay. don't okay. quote me on this because I didn't go back and look at the review again, but I'm okay. pretty confident that that's kind of what it's like. Um, and then I also got SimCity Junior for the Super Famicom, which, nice. you know, we were talking about Maxis, um you know, last episode with Tiger Claw TV. And I saw this and I was kind of surprised. I, I had never heard of this game and I looked it up and it was a Japanese exclusive. Um, so it didn't come out on the SNES. So I went ahead and picked it up. I mean, these were only six bucks each. And then after we went to the game store, we went back to Tony's house and he showed me kind of like a nearly complete uh, version of his 
mockumentary that he's been working on. It's called <laughs> Lot of Boys, The Secret History of the GameCube. They've been working on this for almost a year, I want to say, and and he asked me to submit a, a part for the mockumentary. So I'm I'm in it for, you know, a couple minutes. So it was pretty fun to be able to sit there. And the whole thing is about a half hour. It has a lot of like YouTubers are in it. I think he said he was going to put it online in September. Definitely go and sub to hard four games. It's the word hard with number four and then games. They they are very funny yeah. and very random, I would say. <laughs> like sometimes yeah. I'm kind of shocked at the randomness. They do. Yeah, they do a lot of good stuff. And um, they're, they're a group of guys and they've known each other since high school. And, you know, they come together at kind of at Tony's house is that's where like their main base is. And that's where they kind of have all the game room and they sit there and they play mostly really bad games and they kind of <laughs> give live commentary and the way that Tony does it and edits it all together. It's really nicely done. Well, I've been sent, putting like pictures out on Instagram and Twitter a little bit, but I've been really focusing on Turbo Graphics. I think doing this uh, tape case project, which is pretty much almost done, I've almost got the whole thing filled out and printed out and clipped and everything ready to go. But Turbo Graphics, you know, I I have now forty six of the ninety four American released games, so I feel like I'm making serious progress. And you know, when you get to a point where I'm almost at that point where I have more than I don't have. Um, and a lot of the ones I have are on the rare or pricey side even. Like mm. I purposely was avoiding a lot of the sports games, uh, uh, all the hockeys and basketball games uh, out there. Um, I'll get them eventually. But that system, I think, you know, when Future Matt was on, he talked about how loaded it was with shoot 'em ups and my gosh, is that true? Like, I did not realize how many there were. Of those 94 games, there's at least 20, which is huge. One-fifth of the library. I mean, can you imagine one-fifth of any of the other systems that, you know, one-fifth of it being uh, shoot-em-ups? Mm-hmm. One-fifth of it being any genre, really, would be crazy. But that system is so good at that. So many great ones. And I, I picked up... One of the pricier games I got was Soldier Blade, and there's three Soldier games in that series. Um, Superstar Soldier is the more affordable one. Even that though goes for around eighty bucks on eBay, but you know you could probably get it for fifty to eighty. The other one is Final Soldier, and I think that was only released in Japan and and Europe on the PC engine. But Soldier Blade usually goes for about one hundred fifty bucks, hmm. and I was able to get it for forty five because it had some minor cosmetic damage on the bottom left corner there was a little burn Mm. got it for 45 bucks just the game but again just the game can go for 145 bucks is it that much better no not really but i i mean you know trying to get them all and that was a great price the the pins weren't burned oh heck no okay and you tested it oh absolutely oh good yeah play is fine i mean it's minor damage still saved a hundred dollars because of minor damage nice usually that sort of thing would bother me you know, I'm such a perfectionist. I want labels to be perfect and everything perfect, but for some reason that just doesn't. So um, I'm going to talk about another game later on, but I I probably got 15 to 20 games in the past month or two, just uh, in various ways. I went down to Frankenson's Collectible Card Show in uh, City of Industry out here, and we have a friend, uh, Land J. There's a J in there for some reason. Uh, Vintage Games and Toys. Um, He's a friend of Aaron and Ricky and myself, 
and he has a booth there, and he really hooked me up with a lot of Turbo games, as well as a Game Boy SP, the Nintendo style Game Boy SP. With a, he updated it though. He put the brighter screen in there, mm-hmm. and he gave me that, and he gave me Battle Toads on Game Boy, and Kirby's Tilt and Tumble, and Gradius Galaxies, uh, all those games for a crazy low price, so low that I'm like, I don't even want to say it. In fact, it was so low, and I told him I cannot give you that amount. And I actually gave him thirty dollars more than he than he said. I mean, how often does that happen? Hmm. I cannot give you that amount. So I just wanted to make sure he felt it was truly fair, and I felt good in my conscience giving him that amount of money. But man, what a great set of pickups, and what a uh, great day that was. So that's pretty much that. I'm just picking up Game Boy and Turbo games. It's been the focus. What else have you been doing, man? Well, um, I wanted to talk about some mobile games. I think I, I talked about this in one of our earlier episodes and never really got back to it. But um, while I was in Michigan, I was playing a lot on my Windows phone and also on my Android tablet. So I have four games I briefly wanted to talk about. The first one is Gravity Guy 2. So last time I talked about Gravity Guy, and I think a lot of people have, have played that. Well, they came out with a sequel, um, and it came out, I think, in March or May. Well, it, it depends. Let, let me see. Okay, it, so it actually came out on the <laughs> Windows phone first in March of 2013, then iOS in May, and finally Android October of 2013. So I got I got it on my Windows phone, and I got to say, like, this is a great game. At first, I wasn't so sure about it. Because it's it's different than the first one, right? The first Gravity Guy, you know, there's like checkpoints. And there's kind of like a defined end. Did you ever play right. it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I remember, when, I remember you downloaded it. I downloaded it right then when you talked about it. Yeah. It was fun. So I actually, I played the first game and there's basically like two different story modes. And I beat both of those. And then I was like, okay. And then I saw that there was a sequel. So I got that. And this is more more of an endless runner where I don't think that it ends. I mean, I might be wrong about this, but it's really, it's more difficult. It's a totally different gameplay. So there's no gravity flipping in this. There's basically these platforms. So you're running on these platforms and with one button, you can raise the platforms. Okay. Mm. So they go up and down and that can help you like to jump, you know, higher or from platform to platform. You also have a jump button. And in what, if you tap the jump button twice, you get like a little, he has like a little jet pack and he does like a little, like a little turbo kind of maneuver. So it's like a double jump. Um, But gravity is still, you know, kind of the main theme of it because in the physics of it just feels so right. Mm. And uh, the controls of it, the music is great. It just looks great. And it's a lot of fun. And, and so they give you missions and things. They give you like, you'll have three missions that you have to get. And then you level up your character. And they give you bonuses and things like that. And there's different little, I forget what they call them, like gadgets that you can equip and everything. But I'm, I'm just addicted to this game. And I, I'm leveled up to like 25 right now. And I just keep playing it. And it's developed by Miniclip. 
re- really recommend that. Um, the next you were one, even, you, well, you were even like humming the song like earlier. Oh, when, yeah. We were getting ready. I'm like, what is that song? Are you making that up right now? And you're like, no, that's Gravity Guy, dude. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I was whistling the theme for it. <laughs> um, the next one is Hungry Shark Evolution. This one I was been, been playing a lot the last week, and I actually tweeted about it, and like nobody like responded. <laughs> but um, this game is really fun. This is a game by Ubisoft. You basically are the shark, and you go around like eating people. <laughs> okay. And it kind of like dumps you in the middle of the map, and you can go. It's like two D scroll, you know, side scrolling, but you can go to the left or you can go to the right. And it's again, they give you these missions that you have to accomplish and you can, you know, you start out with this like one kind of shark. I think it's a reef shark. And then, you know, you can upgrade your shark to the next one. You can unlock the Mako shark. And then the one after that is the hammerhead. And so you go on these missions and you have to, you know, eat so many things and, you know, you earn points. And I just find it really addicting and fun, you know, to kind of just prowl around and, you go, you dive deep and there's caverns and it's almost like Echo the Dolphin a little bit where you're looking for these hidden objects. And the thing is that you, you have to constantly eat in order to survive. You have a life bar that will slowly go down. Oh, wow. Um, this, this is a free game. Um, so I highly recommend it. Um, Gravity Guy 2, there's also a free version and then you can that gives you the option to purchase uh you know to get rid of the ads and stuff I, and I totally bought it. Okay, next game is one that I downloaded a long time ago on my tablet and initially it didn't work. It, and it's Pacific Rim the video game. Uh-oh. So I downloaded this after I saw the movie cuz I was so, you know, jacked up about the movie. I really liked it and I'm like, "Oh, I want to play, you know, I want to punch some monsters and so here was this game it was a five bucks and i just downloaded it and it didn't work like literally (laughs) i would i would turn it on and it just would say the app failed to launch and i was such a noob back then that i didn't know that you had like a certain amount of time where you could get a refund you know like if the app doesn't work you can actually click refund i think it gives you like i didn't know that either yeah yeah well, I didn't know it, so I was just like, well, whatever, and I just kind of put it out of my mind. Well, you know, these tablets, say update all the time. So my tablet updated like five or six times, and for whatever reason, I just thought to myself, well, I'm going to try this again, and lo and behold, now it works, okay? So huh. I, ju- I just was playing it the other day, and this game, I hate this game. It. <laughs> It sucks, man. Why did I know that? I I had a feeling. It's so bad. It's literally like you're just standing there as the robot and there's a monster in front of you. And literally, you just stand there and it's just like you punch each other. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Rock'em, suck'em, robot. It's just like that. And it's so bad. I mean, there, there is a dodge. You can dodge. You can block. But when you go to attack the monster, like he blocks all your shots and it's like you supposedly can parry, but it's very confusing. The, the controls are terrible. It's just extremely frustrating. Um, so just stay away from that game. 
if you were smarter than I was, you probably read a review of it and never got it. So, <laughs> um, the last one I want to talk about is a game that I just saw recommended on the Grid Gaming, and it was recommended by Elizabeth actually, and it's called Smash Hit. And this game is so great; it's it's unlike anything I've ever played. It's like kind of like a on rails thing where you're you know kind of going into the screen. It kind of like has a space here type thing. What you do is you have these like they're basically like pinballs or ball bearings or whatever. Yeah, I I have this game. I've actually played it too. Okay, and I actually didn't recognize the name, but I searched it right now. I'm like, oh crap! Yeah, I played that all all kinds of. Oh yeah, things. and it, it was two bucks um, on Android. You can get it free, but I I bought the full version because I oh. liked it so much. So you just basically throw these like pinballs at things and and um. If you hit these little pyramids, then you get three extra balls, right? So you start out with, like, so many balls, and and the game ends if you run out. And meanwhile, as you're traversing through this kind of maze thing, there's all kinds of glass walls that will drop down in front of you, and you, so you have to break the glass with your, with your metal balls. Yeah, it, it's very um, ethereal, almost like Tron, or, like, you're, you're like, floating, like, yeah. disembodied floating through these weird glass caverns exactly and uh that's a good way of describing it and it's just yeah you just all you do it's very simple concept you touch where you want to throw the ball and and then the ball will just shoot out and and smash into whatever it is and the the smashing sounds are so satisfying But there's physics too. I mean, yes. you got to throw it at an arc because if something's farther away and you and you just push where the object is, you're not going to hit it. Absolutely. And like there's certain yeah. parts where you come to a door and you have to like break certain crystals in order to open the door. So you have to throw the ball at the right time. It, it's I agree. It's very interesting because it's really in this one. It's not about a high score so much as it's about getting as far as you can. It's about a high distance. Right. Right. And there are check points and i i think i've only gotten to like the fourth or the fifth checkpoint but there's something about it that is so relaxing to me the visuals and the music together it real. i know what you mean it's very yeah. much like you're just floating and just you know throwing crap and yeah, yeah it's very chill and so i highly recommend a good call uh, elizabeth at the grid gaming it's kind of ironic though i mean the whole thing is called it's called smash hit and yeah. it's about smashing things, but they balance that by making it so like like floaty. The name is not a great name. I mean, you do smash things, but it's it's almost no, it like too relaxing of a game to be called Smash Hit. But maybe they wanted it to be a smash hit, so that's why they called it that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there may be some search reasons for calling it that. Who knows? But I'm a fan, and uh, and and that game is by a company called Mediocre. <laughs> oh my god yeah which i think is a mediocre great... release smash hit go figure it's a great name for a company it's mediocre ab mediocre ab i don't know what the ab stands for. i have no idea it's time for the mailbag that's when we look at the mail in the fake bag it's time for the mailbag, and we have two audio questions that came into the bag. <laughs> the fake bag. <laughs> into the fake bag. So let's go to the first one that came to us from Enzi on July 7th, 2014. 
Hello Retro Rejects, Enzi here with a question for you. As a computer science student, I intend to be developing video games within a few years. What I want to know is, what makes a game good? And more importantly, what makes a game great? Please include some examples of games that implement these features that you will discuss. Super Metroid and Bionic Commando are not acceptable answers. I want to develop one of the greatest games ever and I would love to hear some of your opinions. Thanks for the time guys, and I'm looking forward to hearing your responses. I think it goes kind of without saying that if a game doesn't have certain things, then it cannot be elevated to that level. So the obvious things, I think, are good, tight controls that are responsive. I mean, it has to have a certain sort of aesthetic um, that it's consistent. It doesn't have to necessarily be the best graphics, I don't think, but it has to have a consistent aesthetic. And I think, obviously, if sound sucks, then it sucks. It can really ruin it. But I think what takes a game to that next level and really makes it artistic is similar to what happens in cinema. You know, if you have good cinematography in a film, it can take an otherwise sort of uh, not visually appealing thing and blow it out of the water. So just like directing a movie, directing a game, what images do you choose to show? Um, how do you present it? That stuff is huge for putting the package together. But I think on a deeper level, there's there's like the pacing of a game. If something is continuously slow or even continuously fast, that actually can be a bad thing. There has to be high and low moments. You sort of have that punctuated. Um, I guess it's a balance between what's expected and then sort of the unexpected things. I, I remember a long time ago hearing, I don't know if it was a, reading an article or someone was telling me about music and how a lot of our favorite songs, they may have traditional verse chorus, but what really grabs us about those songs is that bridge or that weird guitar solo or that thing that is not like every other song. And I think that in a different way, that's true of games as well. Those cool moments that just really stand out where there's nothing really like that in other games. That elevates a game uh, beyond just mediocre, <laughs> you know? There are a ton of cookie-cutter Mario clones, but what puts Mario over the edge? I think it's those weird moments in Mario 3 when you're in a boot for some reason. Or, you know, <laughs> when you first get the cape feather yeah. or Yoshi, there, there are certain things that stand out. I believe that's really where it counts. If you strip away everything else, it's... Um, surprising gamers who've played a thousand games already, uh, something has to stand out. Otherwise, it's everything else. Yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. Well, the when you mentioned the boot in Mario Three um, a couple months ago, when I went to Florida, um, some friends that we visited in West Palm Beach, they have a, a son who I think is about ten years old. And when I moved away from Florida, I gave him a Nintendo and I gave him Mario One, Two, and Three. Wow. And um, <laughs> and kind of like you know, set him up so to speak with retro <laughs> gaming, and so he you know he had been playing all those games, but he never really got that far. But yeah, we sat down and I played with him, you know, two player mode, and I actually went through and beat all three of the games. Oh, rad! And um, it was funny because it was about the time that Buried on Mars was starting, like his you know playthrough of the first right. super mario brothers and I actually like put on twitter i'm like i just beat super mario brothers one despite buried on mars yeah but really i was playing it with my buddy's son and so when we got to the part where there was the boot 
I'm like, oh, you guys. And my kids were there too. So they were like watching us play. I'm like, watch this. And I, I hit the guy and I got in the boot and I started bouncing around and they just cr- went crazy. They, they thought it was the funniest thing ever. They were like cracking up and I was cracking up and it was just like a cool thing to have them see it for the first time and like (laughs) see their reaction. And when I thought about it, like, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, this really is ridiculous. The fact that you're jumping around in this boot. Well, it's such a weird thing. It's not (laughs) necessary at all. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Why, why did they put that in there? That, but that's what I'm talking about. It's these weird details that people now talk about. Right. And it's of all the things to mention that I would mention that that you just had that experience like a month ago. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. But it, I think that goes to show what I'm saying. I think it, there's truth yeah. to it. Um, but that's awesome. <laughs> so first of all, NZ, I, I did want to say, you know, good luck to you. I know that you're studying, as you said, the graphic design and the, the computer science and all that stuff. And I think, you know, you're, you hope to be a game developer. And I say good luck. Um, it's a very competitive, um, but I think if you, you know, work hard and, and you have the gift, then it's, it's, it could happen. So, you know, good luck to you. Um, and by the way, I did like the background music that you put yeah. in there too, <laughs> but, um, I just decided to really just boil it down to three things. And, and Chris touched on some of this. Um, you know, my number one would be like intuitive controls. So like when I'm going to play a game, like take these mobile games, for example, when I download one of these games to try it for free or whatever, like I know in the first like five seconds or 10 seconds, if I, if I'm going to like it or not. And a lot of that is based upon the controls. Um, and, and if they, if they work, (laughs) yeah, because you know, you know, contrast that with like, so like the gravity guide games, like right away I picked it up. It all worked. It all felt good. It was easy, intuitive with Pacific rim. It's like (laughs) not that it's you're slashing (laughs) around like an idiot uh, with the screen and nothing is really doing what you want it to do. And it's a very frustrating feeling. And so that game should have never been released. So the number two is fun gameplay. Um, you know, it's got to be fun. Like you, you could have very good controls, but it could be like a very lame game, right? Yeah, but what makes it fun? That's kind of the question. <sighs> <laughs> Sorry look, to ruin it. You know, if, if, saying, if I but... could, if I could look, if I could provide that formula, I would be a rich man myself. See, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah. Though. What <laughs> makes it fun? I think if it's a baseline is all the same thing for the whole game. That's not fun. There has to be these moments that rise up and it can come yeah. back down. Right. But those moments are where it is key. And that's what relates to my third thing is that it had, there has to be something unique about the game. Right. Yeah. So like you said, Chris, you know, there's a million Mario clones, but you know, none of them are Mario because Mario mm. kind of set the standard, you know, for platforming. So there has to be something unique about it to make it a quote unquote great game. You know, like I would go back to this mobile thing, like the Smash game. Like that's a very unique thing that I've Mm. never seen before. And I was just drawn to it. Now, you know, is it a great game? I don't know. I just got it. I've only played it a few times, but I I really like. So I hope that in some way helped to answer your question. And thank you for submitting it. (laughs) 
So this question was released about a year and a half ago on May 15th of 2013. It's from Jeremy B. And he sent it to us over our Gmail. And it, it, this is several parts. So I think the best way maybe is to just do one at a time. So the first question is, what is your favorite console game? We've kind of answered some of these maybe in the past. Bionic Commando on the NES. And my favorite console game is Glover. <laughs> the second question what is your favorite video game console? The Nintendo Entertainment System. And I say the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, seriously, though, I have to ask you. Yeah. Why NES over Super NES? Because one is more super. Well, Chris, it's because I never had a Super Nintendo growing up. And I, had, I had a Nintendo. And that was like the first console that I bought with my own money. And it was the one that I, I spent the most hours playing. Yeah. Fair enough. The third question, what is your favorite arcade game? Well, so I, I yeah, I wrote this a long time ago. I actually forgot this. I, I put Star Wars, the arcade game, the cockpit version. Yeah, when I think back to, like, most magical experiences, like, in the arcade, I mean, that, that one ranks really high up there. You know, like, the vector graphics, like, sitting inside the cockpit, and you know, it was all very, like, dark, and, you know, it felt like you were in that cockpit, and you were, uh, you were in an X-Wing, and you were out in space trying to take on the Death Star, and it was great. I, yeah, I just yeah. played that a few months ago, and man, it is. There really isn't a lot like it, especially at that time. Wow, that was fantastic. Yep. Honestly, like I've said before on the show, I didn't grow up with arcade being arcade games being a big part yeah. of my gaming, you know, memories. Um, but the one that I put down was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Yeah. Strangely enough, that topic keeps coming up. Uh, that we would stumble on this question now. It's kind of funny. Right. But seriously, I mean, with playing with three other people and, uh, you know, that I, I played it on Super Nintendo, uh, Turtles in Time, but playing the arcade game with other people, it was fantastic. They're really, mm -hmm. um, I, I still think that's one of the best beat em ups and fighter type games that there, that there is. But if, if you were to ask me this now, um, I'd say that, you know, I always liked Centipede. Just the roll, simplicity of the rollerball in oh, terms of yeah. get a high score. But, you know, when I went to visit Greg and he, to, he gave me that tutorial on Robotron, I have a great appreciation for the, the fast-paced nature mm -hmm. um, and that dual-stick dual control scheme. I, I really do like that game. Hmm. Smash TV, the sequel, is also great, but something is so pure about Robotron. Hmm. So fast, so simple. And when it's on free play, just hit the button and play again. It, it's yeah. so... Addicting. I think we played till 3 a.m. So I, awesome. I don't like rollerball games. Well, I I don't know many. I haven't played many, but Centipede was always fun. Yeah. Although, but, Aaron and I played that horseshoe game last year at Portland. No, that was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the fourth question that he asked is, what is the best game series of all time? And... I think you copped out here. You you got to pick one. I I wrote three. Right. Too bad. Um. Gosh darn it. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go with. Uh, uh. <laughs> Are you going to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, well, I don't know. I don't know a hundred percent on this, but I'm going to say Contra. Um, I love all the Contra games. The first one is probably my favorite. The other ones are, are good. They're just really hard. <laughs> that is I, I just need to true. practice. I need to, I need to get back into it, but overall I, I really do like the Contra series, um, you know, all the way up through PS2, um, Shattered Soldier, I think, is a pretty awesome game. Did you ever play Contra 4 on... Uh, that's a DS. No, game. I never did, but I, I heard good things oh, about it. But that, I just... Yeah. Of all the Contra, like, more recent Contra games, I mean, that really is a throwback to somewhere between NES and Super NES and Hardcore, you know, and Genesis. Uh, that one is fantastic. There's not a 7th-gen uh, Contra, is there? Like, console game? Not... I don't think there is not no not but I there I believe there was a uh, like a PlayStation Network uh, downloadable contract. Oh, really? Yeah, you have to look that up. I, I'm I'm gonna check it out. Well, you're checking that out. Yeah. Um, I think hands down for me, it is the Castlevania series. Uh, there are there are some misses I would say when they tried to push things into 3D. But if you look at the original NES Castlevania games, I mean, one and three are really great. Three is very great. Um, when when Super Castlevania or Castlevania Four came out on Super Nintendo, there was something amazing about the rotating levels and swinging using your whip and diagonal whipping. That was really awesome. But you know, I, for me, I think Castlevania became something unbelievable when symphony of the night came out and they mixed sort of the metroid elements plus all the rpg elements leveling up and getting new items and equipment and then taking those into the game boy advance the three games on game boy advance they all follow that circle of the moon harmony of dissonance uh, area of sorrow and then on the ds they came out with some great ones dawn of sorrow is probably in my opinion after Symphony of the Night is probably the best Castlevania game. Mm. And and then now they have, you know, I know people say it's sort of a God of War ripoff, but the Castlevania Lords of Shadow games also are fantastic. It just overall, there's a lot of hits and not a lot of misses if you look at the whole series and Bloodlines and, you know, Rondo of Blood, Dracula X. It's so solid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and, and consequently, I just picked up Castlevania Lords of Shadow for the PS3. And I think I only paid like 11 bucks shipped on eBay for Fantastic. this. Yeah. Thank you, Jeremy B. I hope you're still listening to the podcast. <laughs> so the next question came in uh, the next day on May 16th, 2013 from the Gmail account. Kevin P. And these are all addressed to Chris NES <laughs> Complex. What is your favorite game of all time? Well, I, I just answered that in the previous question. I think I've talked about this game a lot. Uh, if you listen back from the very first episode, Glover is a fantastic game. I think Glover is almost sets the bar for what a platformer should be. It sort of took uh-huh. Super Mario 64 right. and... Um, it it took off Mario's hand, right. so it's, you're just his hand, and you just you play with ball. Right. Um, sometimes the ball is made of rubber. Sometimes the ball is made of metal, kind of like Smash Hit. Uh, you throw the ball, <laughs> you roll the ball, you stand on the ball. There, I mean, there's just so much interaction between mm-hmm. the severed Mario hand and the ball. Yeah. There really is nothing like it. You know, we talk about what makes a game great. You know, you got to be unique. 
Is there any other game with a severed hand? I can't. I, no. No. Is there, can you think of many other games that have different, like, balls made of different things? Um, not offhand. Has, no. This other thing, too, has, like, these things, like, it has levels. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the next question is, do you have a Wii U? I think I also have answered this. I do have a Wii U, and um, no, this is not yet. I did not at the time have a Wii U, so you didn't have it in May of 2013. No, but I got it in uh, November, I believe, of 2013. Okay. So I originally put not yet, but yes, I do now, and I will have to say that I think that finally, I feel like the Wii is starting. The Wii U is starting to have some games that are worth playing <laughs> like what like what well, i think mario kart 8 was is fantastic i mean i know it's just another mario kart and i think that they did themselves a great favor i don't know how many people really took advantage of it but i bought mario kart 8 and it came with a code uh for you to get another game for free and so uh the choices i think that that promotion may be over now though but i mean you could get zelda wind waker the remake or pikmin 3 or mario game or I think Wii Party, as a free downloaded game if you just put in the code. So it was like buying one and you got two games. So we got Pikmin 3 and had a great time with the kids playing that over the summer. But, I mean, you look on the horizon and Smash Brothers is not too far away and a new Zelda is not too far away. I think Super Mario 3D World is great. Uh, it's not another cookie cutter. I feel like it does innovate in some ways. Just, just with the. I mean, it's a lot like Super Mario 3D Land on 3DS, but the level designs are interesting. There's a lot of just fun, different ways of playing, like playing in, in shadows, or um, you know, with the cat suit that adds some interesting things, or some of the racing kind of levels. There's a, I think Mario Galaxy did this a lot too, where it had diversity of level from level to level, diversity of designs, and they sort of did that here too. And I think that kind of answers both questions. The, the next one is, am I planning on getting one? Yes. You already did. I did. And I actually changed your answers on the spreadsheet for you. Yeah, but you still have Super Metroid as my favorite game. That oh. was yesterday. Oh, sorry. Let Today, it's Glover. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I updated it. All right, go Glover. All right, now you ask me the yeah. next one. Don't boss me around. <laughs> All right, yeah, because we ping pong this. The next question was asked on May 19th of 2013, and it was sent to us over YouTube from that video where I said, ask us anything, and it was from Reaper Max Zero. And this is, I think, a great question. Can you give some advice on where to find games? Okay. And you have a ton of things, so I'm just going to let you... I just I made a list of eight things. And you can add mine and make that nine. Okay, and I'll add number nine. Okay, so here it is. Flea market, thrift stores, garage sales, pawn shops, retro game stores, trading with people, which I think... Is kind of like friends. Is that is that like friends? Okay. I would say that yes, but but what I meant when I said friends, and I think uh, uh, Cartridge Bros, they've been posting some pictures. When people don't know that you collect or are interested in retro games, they don't even know. But when a lot of times when people find out, they're like, you know, I have a box of stuff that I'm not playing and I don't really care about. You want to look at it? 
you know, it's not like you want to rip your friends off, but uh, I def I didn't rip anyone off, but I had friends who came to me and said, "Here's all my stuff. Do you you want to have any of it?" I'm like, uh, okay. A friend of mine gave me a Super Nintendo with like 20 games, including uh, Mario Kart and Super Metroid and all these, you know. Contra. Okay, uh, okay. I see what you're saying. So the other two I have here, well, I have eBay and GameGavel. And then I also have Craigslist. So for those of you not in the U.S., Craigslist is like an online classifieds type of a thing. What am I missing here? Um, I think that a a few big places, Nintendo Age is pretty big. I've never personally used it, but a lot of people have made contacts there and done their trades through Nintendo Age. And, of course, it's not just Nintendo, but that's the name of the site. Good. Um, There's there's other retail-type sites. Uh, Lukey, I believe you pronounce it, Lukey Games. Their, Their prices are sometimes fair and sometimes ridiculous it depends but they do free shipping if you order more than 25 dollars right east um, starland is east another starland goodwill has a website oh. you can check i think it's called shop goodwill yeah I, yeah i kind of stopped looking at that but mm-hmm. the, the one thing you didn't put on here which i think is huge is conventions hello Oh, yeah. yeah. Find everything there. If you can make it to any of the conventions in your area or have to fly, that you're going to find everything. All right. Well, I All say right. we will now switch it up and throw in an, our second audio question. This will be interesting because we've heard his voice before, but we're finally going to hear it for real. Yeah, this is Mark Mildenberger, who who has previously sent all of his audio questions in a English accent, and now we're getting the real Mark. Hello, Retro Rejects. If you were planning on taking over the world, and you could choose one 1980s-era cartoon supervillain to aid you in your diabolical plan, who would you choose and why? Megatron? Mumra? Shredder? Maybe Skeletor, Cobra Commander. There's many more to choose from. Love to hear your answers. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Man, this question is really difficult because, like, the first thing I want to say is that the whole premise of almost every show is that the villain fails every time mm-hmm. in their attempt to take over the world. But I think that the best chance that you would have is Megatron. Come on. Really? He's, he's ruthless. He doesn't care about inferior species like human beings and let's face it i mean he could just step on everybody or shoot them with his big old arm cannon if it was you and megatron how how would you go about taking over the world well let's just well, say honestly what does it even mean to take over the world well i, 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 I think it's sort mean, of what yeah think... general zod did in, in superman 2 just show up at and like world leaders you know, palaces and white houses and government buildings and just tell them, do what I say or or I'm going to destroy you. So would that be your policy? Do like, what I say or destroy. Do, die. Do what I say or I'll send Megatron to what? Kill everybody? He will fly and he will just murder everyone that you love. But isn't Megatron, like, he's not indestructible, right? So, I mean, he's just one robot. Oh, for crying out loud. Look. It's a serious question, and I think you need to put a little more thought into it. If he really was a robot from outer space, yeah, it it would be very similar to General Zod. That's really all I have to say. You don't okay. you can you can try to punch holes in my argument, but so, no, you know, I will. He goes to the White House and he goes on TV and he says, 
I want energy delivered to me like a bully. But and no. if you don't give it to me, no. then I will destroy you measly, pathetic humans. No, you're misunderstanding the question. The question is, you are going to take over the world. You, Chris, NES Complex. And you get well, to pick... Well, me and Megatron are buddies. We're it, like, right. And you get to pick one of these villains to be like your goon, okay. okay? He will give me everything I need because if they don't, then Megatron will go crush them for me. So let's just say that, you know, you're going to start out by taking over the United States of America. So what's your plan? I would say, hey, Megatron, go smash into the White House. Okay. And then he'd grab, he'd grab the President Obama or whoever by the, <laughs> by the head. He'd say, you know, he'd say, I wish I could do a Megatron voice, but yeah. he would just say, Obama, you're my uh, puppet now. I'm going to, you do what I say and give me energy or I'll crush you. No, no, no. You're going to be the president. I, no, don't. I don't want to be the president. I want to sit back and just have things delivered to me. So Megatron would be like, "Send NES Complex, okay, more Turbo Graphics games." All right, you're very, oh. you're very bad at this. Um, can okay, I, can I please? Take your, me? your, your choice is so great. Okay, I don't even know who this is. Okay, so here's who I, I would pick: Prince Lotor from Planet Doom. Okay, from Voltron, <laughs> the Voltron series. This is my grand plan. Okay, so I'm going to be like, all right. So in Voltron, you know what they did is that they would, what they would do is they would make like this monster and they call them, they call them ro-beasts, right? Because they're kind of like half robot, half monsters, or I don't know. And what they would do is they would make these ro-beasts and then once they made one of them, they would send it to go and attack something and then voltron would show up and destroy the row beast okay in my answering this question what i would do is i would go to planet doom and i would say okay look low tour this row beast thing is a great idea but you what we should do is not make just one row beast at a time we should make like an army of robies like let's take our time here let's think this through let's make about I don't know, a thousand robies, okay? We'll have them on the planet. Nobody's going to be the wiser. And then we're going to build these massive spaceships. Well, he has them already. And we load up the robies, okay? And then we, we invade Earth. And so we have these massive spaceships floating all around Earth. <laughs> and then we throw the robies down onto the earth and they go through and they just demolish all the major cities of the world. And then I will come down and say, I am now the ruler of earth. This would be like that yeah. scene in Indiana Jones where the, the guy <laughs> swings a sword all around. Like, you know, he's so bad. And then someone just shoots him. You no, just no, no, get no. shot. The well, end. I would have like a protective, you know, suit with like shielding or around like a robeast. I have kind all of kinds suit. of advanced technology. Like I would be impervious to conventional weaponry. Prince Lotor and Princess Vintage. And then I would. Yeah. And I would go and I would, you know, the White House would be my base of operations. Would you paint it like green and blue, like vintage colors? I think I, <laughs> that's a good idea. Yeah, I would replace the uh, rotunda or the dome and stuff. I'd put a big brain on it. <laughs> there you go. And that that's how it's done, Chris. Um, now, I think all you need is a, is one just really strong buddy. <laughs> just, 
just you and your buddy. I, I just imagine me and Megatron skipping through a field. Well, let's face it. I, I think you know, uh, you know, a few tanks and a few well placed RPGs no, would take it, out Megatron. No, it was firmly established in the last episode that sticks and clubs can take out a tank in Civilization, <laughs> right? So I think Megatron could shoot them, or he could just step on them. Yeah. Um, let, let's keep going, because I really want to get through May of 2013. Okay, so the next question was given to us on May 25th, 2013. It was a Gmail question from Dan N. And this one is a question I think that a lot of people have been wanting to know an answer to mm-hmm. for a long time. Seriously, where is Vintage Video Game Geek from? He has the strangest accent I've ever heard. Uh, I've always had this kind of a unique way of speaking. And when I was younger, what I used to say was that I actually come from the future and this is how everybody talks in the future. And then there's the other theory that I don't have any teeth. And so I need <laughs> to have some kind of like, there's some kind of chip inside my throat that actually emulates a voice and that the technology is not that great so this is the best that we can do it's you know it's something above Stephen Hawking but below the smooth (laughs) tones of Chris NES complex that's right yeah that's right baby um I think that you might be from space (laughs) well why would I come here if, if if I had the technology... Well, you're waiting because the row beasts are being assembled. You're waiting and scoping it out. We're waiting for your imminent attack. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's you why... You told us you would do... Th- wait. Yeah. That plan was really thought out. This isn't real. I, I just it? thought that up in like five minutes, but... <laughs> sure. No. Now you're all backtracking, but you're actually going to conquer the world. You've got, you've got me. Um, and and then this is why... I can only do the podcast once a month. That's why you don't show your head. Right. Because the rest of the time, I'm back on planet Doom preparing for the invasion. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's let's round this out with our final question. It came to us from the Gmail account on May 30th, 2013, from Matthew G. It's kind of a long one. That's what she said. <laughs> I was just wondering if you guys think that there is going to be a second video game console crash. Personally, I feel like there will be. With Microsoft announcing that the Xbox One will have to always be online. (laughs) As well as the fact that if you buy a used game, you will have to pay a $15 fee. I feel like a second console market crash is inevitable. Because if Microsoft, Sony, and or Nintendo keep pulling this crap and try to treat us like animals, people will not want to buy any of their consoles and the market will crash. So I was just wondering what your opinion is. Are they really treating us like animals? Yeah, I... I like like the passion. I, I really like the passion that Matthew has brought to this court. Now, in a way, though, any um, any large business is approaching us at, like, the predictable behaviors of human buying patterns, you know, those sorts of things. There is a sense in which we're being herded, so I don't think that's necessarily a far stretch. Um, but 
I don't know if there ever will be a crash in the sense where people like video games are are dumb and we don't need them anymore. I think that they've become way too mainstream. And by what I mean by restructuring is, will they always be on a home console the way they are now, or will will they all converge? I mean, what's on a phone now is getting better and better. Now, the controls aren't great on most of it, but it's getting better and better, and I think eventually it, it'll just be different. Yeah. You have something to say? Well, I just was wondering if you want to go back and, you know, kind of clear up that business about the Xbox One, because that was kind of dated information. Well, that's true. I mean, they, yeah, Microsoft heard the cries of humanity and <laughs> the animals. Well, what, what, was that, it, was that at E3 2013 that all that went down? Yeah. And this was right about that time, like uh, E3. What is it? Late May? It must be late May or early June. I forget the actual dates that it was last year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is about that time. So all that was a very hot topic, and they did listen and they did change some of it. But right. So fast forward, it doesn't have to be online anymore to play the games, and you don't have to pay money for used games. Correct. Right, but you know, like, let's be honest, what Xbox was trying to do is what they want to do. And I think it's what Sony ultimately wants to do as well, but it's just people aren't ready for it. You know, getting rid of physical media, right, right. making everything online, I think that that is inevitable. Um, but a crash, I don't think is inevitable. I think things will change and we're just going to have to adapt. Mm -hmm. I think video games are as likely to crash as movies are likely to crash. Mm -hmm. music i would think that like how music was when you and i were kids is very different it hasn't crashed but it's definitely been restructured right people don't look forward to buying an album as much as they hear a great song and they buy it that is true i think it's a very similar situation music's not going anywhere games aren't going anywhere this they change i, th I think we're pretty safe from you know any kind of a crash i just can't see it happening unless there's like a complete global economic collapse where the entire thing just goes kaput and, you know, it's walking dead time. So I think that ends the mailbags. I do, too. Star Trek, the final frontier. This is the segment where we talk about Star Trek. Boldly going where no retro gaming podcast has gone before. Okay, so, uh, you know, we haven't done this for a while. I think last time we did it was when Gamester was on, like episode 12. But we're going to do the Star Trek segment, and this time we're going to talk about Star Trek Voyager. And this, honestly, even more than Next Generation, is what got me into Star Trek. I watched a lot of Next Generation, but this is the first series that I watched starting at the beginning. And really kind of carried it through. So a personal favorite. And if you don't know, this is the third spinoff. So you had the original series, the next generation, then Deep Space Nine. And this came out right as Next Generation was ending. And do you know what year that was? Uh, 1995. The year I graduated high school. So I was just going out into college and everything. So this came out. The, the next year. So Next Generation lasted seven years. The following year, Voyager started. And uh, Deep Space Nine sort of overlapped both of the series for a, num a few years. And this was the last Star Trek 
uh, TV show that ever came out. That, <laughs> that's important that we recognize it. Um, seven yeah. seasons, 172 episodes, uh, and they ended in May of 2001. The, the premise of this, I remember reading an article before it even came out. They were like, we want to get back to the roots of Star Trek, of exploring strange new worlds and civilizations, you know. That, and I think that they did a pretty good job because what they did is they threw a ship into the middle of nowhere. Uh, the premise is it starts off and the ship is chasing this group called the Maquis, which we may or may not talk about a little bit later. But basically the Maquis was freedom fighter type group who believed that, that the Federation, some of the other uh, uh, groups of races and species, that they were, they were being unfair in some ways. And so the Maquis were freedom fighters. They weren't necessarily bad people. They were almost like terrorists slash freedom fighters. Uh, is that fair? Well, they didn't like the Cardassians, right? That the Cardassians were being accepted. Right. Um, they didn't trust the Cardassians. They thought that, I mean, they were kind of like terrorists. <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, it's a fine line between terrorists and freedom fighters. They well, thought the Cardassians were unfair to the Bajorans, and the Bajorans had no one really sticking up for them. Yeah, and... and yeah, and the Cardassians were kind of bad guys themselves, but they were trying to pretend like they were good, but they really weren't. Right. So it was a complex political situation. Right. So the Maquis are this group of freedom fighter terrorists slash people, and, and they're <laughs> being chased by the Starship Voyager, a Federation ship, and they go out into this area called the Badlands. And... Uh, an energy wave sweeps across them, and it's this this being known as the caretaker, which I'm not going to get into the whole plot of that, but they basically get whisked away into the Delta Quadrant, which is like, I, I forget how many light years it like is. 70,000 light years. It, it would take a lifetime. 75,000. Yeah. Yeah. A lifetime traveling at maximum warp mm -hmm. before you got anywhere near home. And so they're, they're, they have no help. In all the other series that, you know, you can call on the assistance of the Federation, but they were alone. And they're not a gigantic ship like Enterprise was. It's a it's a Voyager class, I believe. Is that the type? I forget the, the type. Mm, but no, it's um, it's not. We should know this. It's an intrepid class okay. starship. So anyway, they're out in the middle of nowhere looking for help and bumping into every every type of alien they encounter pretty much is new. So it gave writers complete freedom uh, away from all the political situations uh, from the other shows. So here's this Maquis ship and Voyager, and they're both stranded out there. And so early on, the idea was that the two crews sort of had to merge together. They might have been enemies when they were, or at least at odds when they were out in the Alpha Quadrant. But in the Delta Quadrant, all they had was each other. And so some of the people in the Maquis actually had Federation experience, but they were kind of rebelling. And so the two crews had to merge, and there was some une uneasiness. So that's the basic premise, trying to get home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought the whole pilot and the whole way that they get out there I thought was pretty lame. I agree. <laughs> I was afraid, uh, as you were saying that, I was afraid you were going to say you thought it was good. No. Um, uh, the pilot was horrible. I mean... As far as pilots go, it wasn't as bad as um, the Next Generation pilot. 
encounter at Farpoint. Oh, that was horrible. Well, it was bad, but at least yeah. there was, you know, Q, and they came back to it at the end. Yeah, I mean, this could have been done differently, but uh, it is what it is. And the overall concept, like you said, I, I like the idea of them being, it's kind of like the opposite of the original Star Trek where they were going out away from Earth. It's the opposite where they're trying to get back to Earth. And, you know, in the first season, I thought they did a great job of introducing a ton of new bad guys. Yeah. Um, you know, the Kazon were kind of like a little bit generic. They were kind of a, a lame Klingon ripoff. I, I personally did not like them. I didn't like them either. I, um, I Just like the other two shows, I feel like this one really hit its stride in season three and four. Yeah. And then they brought in, like, the Vidians, which I thought were a really interesting race of these aliens that were basically dying of this disease called the phage. Called the phage. And the only way that they could survive was by harvesting the organs of, like, other, you know, aliens that were, like, compatible with their physiology and... So there were a lot of like moral implications and there were a lot of good episodes that came out of interacting with them. I agree. But, you know, I think what's really cool from the very beginning, it was known that the Delta Quadrant is actually the origination point of the Borg. And we're going to talk about the Borg because if you're in the Delta Quadrant and this is where the Borg are, then there's going to be a lot of Borg episodes. So like the very first time the Borg were mentioned in Star Trek Next Generation Mm-hmm. We knew they came from the Delta Quadrant. So they're being thrown out there. You know it's going to happen eventually. Yep. They're going to be surrounded by the Borg. All right. So th- there are, we, like we usually do, we just pick kind of three of our top episodes um, that we wanted to talk about. And actually, all three of mine are very ethical in nature. I like those kind of episodes like we talked about with the next generation, like the measure of a man, you know, like these are the kind of episodes that really make you think about, you know, really deep issues. And so the, the first one that I want to talk about is called Two Vix. Um, it's season two, episode 24. And there are these two main characters on the show. Uh, one is Tuvok, who is a Vulcan security chief and then you have this other guy named neelix who is this alien race he's a talaxian they picked him up in the in the beginning of the show kind of was like their guide (laughs) he's not yeah he's kind of like the quark of voyager i guess oh man he's the morale officer like his whole goal is to be bubbly and cheerful and I guess slightly annoying. <laughs> he is really annoying. Um, definitely my least favorite member of the crew, but he had his moments, right? So what what ends up happening is we have a transporter incident where they beam up from this planet and they they have this kind of, I think it's like a plant or something like that. And when they beam up together... And excuse me, I'm battling a summer cold here. If I sound a little stuffy. They beam up together and something about this plant like causes this transporter thing where they merge together and they create like this new person. It looks like a cross between Tuvok and Neelix. So it's weird because this guy and they end up calling him Tuvix. Is it like a cross between the two names? He retains 
both memories, you know, from both the guys. Um, but he's obviously an individual person, so he kind of develops his own identity. And so initially they kind of do the scans and they they say there's no way we can separate them. And it's just it is what it is. Since he still possesses all of his you know skills and abilities, he still stays on as like the the security chief, and he does a good job of it. So Janeway, who's the captain, by the way, first female captain ever featured in a series, that was a big deal. And Kate Mulgrew played Janeway, and I thought she was great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So. <laughs> Like some she, t- by the way, she she's in Orange is the New Black. I haven't personally watched that, but I know a lot of people probably have out there. But yeah, Kate Mulgrew is a main character in that show. Right. And I've seen, I think I saw an interview she did on Conan and like time has not been good to Kathy. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, she's looking really bad. <laughs> oh. But, you know, good for her. She's still out there doing her thing, and she has I mean, this, a successful show. This show ended 15 years ago, you know? Think about that. I know. About 15. And she wasn't young when she did no. you know, Voyager. But anyway, to get back on track, so this Tuvix guy kind of, like, develops his own identity and his own kind of place in the ship. Well, meanwhile, the Doctor, who's a hologram, which is pretty cool, he figures out a way to separate them. So now we have this situation where this guy Tuvix is like, well, hey, that's great, but I don't want to be separated. <laughs> right. And it becomes this big issue and Janeway, you know, is placed in this position where, you know, she needs to make a decision. Is she going to allow this guy to continue existing or is she going to honor the rights of the original two people and what they would have wanted. So she has to kind of stand in that gap. And at the end of it, she decides that, you know, I'm sorry, but we want our two guys back. And, you know, he's like, well, you know, if you do this, you're, you're basically going to just kill me. You know, I'll, I just won't exist anymore. And, and he appeals to like other members of the crew and they basically all, it's a very like gut wrenching, yeah, you know, I forgot it, about that. It's it's it makes you really uncomfortable, and you feel bad for this guy because everybody kind of turns on him, and you know they basically like force him into the transporter room, and you know the doctors like, look, you know, even though I did this, you know, I figured out how to do it, I refuse to push the buttons because he's like, I'm a doctor, I can't hurt a living being, yeah. and so Jane, right. And so Janeway ends up having to step up and look him in the eye and, you know, push the button and the the beam comes down and it separates them. And, you know, Neelix and Tuvok are back and, you know, Janeway kind of walks out in the end and you can tell that she's just like crushed. You know, it's like I can't even imagine. And so it really left a big impression on me of like, what would you do in that situation? And you kind of feel bad because... You know, this life that existed is no longer there. 
That yeah, wow. When you when you talk about it, it reminds me. I remember the look on on Tuvix's face and the the sort of anger and defiance. Like you can't do this. You can't right. kill me. Right. Um, but yeah, that was that was tough. Uh, my my first episode is actually a two parter. It was one. Of, it was season three ending episode episode twenty six, and it continued in season four episode one. Um, it's called the Scorpion. And I think a lot of people would say this is one of the better episodes because it is the one that really thrusts the Borg into Voyager. So just a little background. I know we've talked a bit about the Borg, but the basics of the Borg are that they assimilate cultures. They're not about being creative and coming up with solutions to problems. They're about conquering other peoples and just taking all their ideas. The Borg are scary. They've been set up constantly as the most powerful, most frightening. If they come in your path, they're just going to board your ship, inject you with little nanoprobes, and turn you into Borg. So the episode sort of starts out where Voyager's minding its business in space, and oh crap, a blip comes on their, you know, their sensors. There's a Borg cube approaching fast. And then, <laughs> you know, Harry Kim, he's he's like just he's sort of like every Tom, Dick, and Harry. He's sort of like the normal guy that, in a lot of episodes, you kind of get to live it through him because he's very just normal, very intelligent, but very normal. And uh, he's like, he's like, oh, there are two cubes. Wait, no, there's four. No, five. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, he looks up, he's like, there are 15 Borg cubes coming at us. Oh my god! Like, what are you going to do? Like, one cube is enough. Right. There's 15. And so the cubes don't just come by. They're haul and tail. They blow right past Voyager. Actually, Voyager's like tumbling in space because of how fast they whiz past them. And you realize very quickly that they're running from something else. So you know the Borg are bad and they're running. The Borg are scary, but they're running. So what the heck mm-hmm. could they be running from? Uh, it basically comes up that there is another species, which the Borg have designated species 8472. <laughs> and and they're this completely different type of thing. They don't even live in our normal space. They live in what you know they'd call subspace. And they're they're like very pure. They don't want anything contaminating them. Fluidic so the Borg, space. In fluidic space. Fluidic yeah. space. It's not subspace. It's <laughs> fluidic. Yeah, you're right. So the Borg, though, because they're always looking to assimilate new uh, creatures into their collective, uh, the Borg found their way into fluidic space. And Species 8472 wasn't cool with this. <laughs> I don't think they can assimilate them, Like, right? They're, no. They're so, so they different. Tried. That they couldn't assimilate them. They tried and tried and right. tried and they couldn't do it. And just Species 8472 comes on board and just jacks them up. <laughs> so the Borg are scared. Right. Um, but anyway, so Voyager's caught in the middle of this. And they go on board a ship. And Species 8472 comes in. They, they bust in. And Harry Kim gets attacked. And he's like slowly changing and morphing and they bring him back to voyager uh right before he gets killed they bring him back to voyager and the doctor because he's so amazing the doctor finds a cure he finds a way of of putting these i forget what they call them i think it's just nanoprobes yeah he uses the Um, borg technology yeah he 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 combines borg technology with his own like i said the borg aren't creative in finding answers to problems but Voyager and you know the Voyager staff, as the Borg always say, they're resourceful. So uh, the doctor finds a cure, and it turns out that these nanoprobes can stop species 8472, but the Borg doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. So the reason it's called a scorpion is, is because it's this story that 
the first officer of the ship, his name's Chakotay, and he's Native American. And he tells a story about, you know, I forget, is it a, what is the creature that would go across? Is it a, across the river? I can't remember what that is. Is it a, uh, is it like a fox? A fox? Or yeah, I think like it's that. a fox. Yeah. So a fox wants to cross, no, a scorpion wants to cross a river and asks a fox to help it. Well, they're, they're swim, they're, the fox decides to help this scorpion. And so they're swimming across the river. And partway through, the scorpion stabs the fox and injects its poison. And the fox is starting to sink. And, and, and he's like, why would you do that? You know, you're, you're killing yourself, too. Why would you do that? And the scorpion replies, it's my nature. That's just what I do. And so the, the whole kind of idea behind this is if, if Voyager works with the Borg, to stop eight, species 8472, are the Borg going to just stab them right in the back just because that's what they do? Or can they actually have some sort of alliance? Well, Voyager takes the risk, and they, ha- they develop this nanoprobe technology to stop species 8472. And in order to work with the Borg, the Borg create seven of nine ter- tertiary adjunctive unimatrix one or something like that. Is zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she's got this whole designation, but seven of nine is going to work with them, and she sets up a, a temporary regeneration station in one of the cargo bays, and she's working with them. But it's all part of a very uneasy alliance, and you know, clearly in the end, Voyager doesn't die. But you know, I don't want to spoil everything that happens. But they work out this loose alliance, and in the end, of course, they they not only make it through. Uh, vast amounts of space that they pick up some Borg technology, but I think more important than any of that is that they picked up seven of nine (laughs) (laughs) as a permanent crew member. And, uh, they strip away a lot of her Borg technology and make her just, uh, you know, beautiful with little eye thing going around one side. Yeah. So, uh, next episode for me is one that also has to do with the Borg. And Seven of Nine. And it's called Drone. And this is Season 5, Episode 2. And so uh, what happens here is I have to give a little bit of background. So there's the ship's doctor, who, as I mentioned before, is a hologram. He was originally meant to just be an emergency medical hologram. Um, In fact, that's his name, like... (laughs) The EMH. He's the EMH, and he never takes a name. I think maybe in the, in the last episode, right? In the no, last he n- episode, never does. No, no in the last does. episode, he does give get a. They do say what they, his name is, uh, but that is an alternate reality. That you know, it, he doesn't take a name. In fact, they've interviewed Robert Picardo about that, and he's glad that he never ultimately had a name. Mm. Remember that they normally didn't get back for. A okay, long, you're right. Long you're you're time. absolutely right. They go back and change it. Okay. So he has this. Yeah. He's just called the doctor And what happens is the original doctor was killed in the pilot episode. So they kind of activate this emergency doctor and because they're out in the Delta quadrant, they don't have a replacement. So he becomes the doctor <laughs> and uh, some things, some things ensue. And at one point they come in contact with the ship from the future and it's from the 29th century. Another great episode, by the way. Which we're not talking about. But uh, at the end of that, they get what is called a mobile holographic emitter. So normally, originally, for like the first couple seasons, doctors like confined a sick bay because 
that's where the holographic projectors are. And later on, they they install some other ones right. like up on the bridge, so he can like the go up the, room. right. Holodeck, but of course. He's still yeah. like stuck on the ship because he's a hologram. Well, when they get this mobile emitter, he you know basically sticks it on his arm, and the program gets transferred into this emitter, and then allows him to like physically leave the ship like a real person as long as he has the emitter on if it falls off he disappears but under normal circumstances he can put it on he can be beamed off the ship and go on away missions so he goes on this away mission with seven of nine and of course there's some kind of transporter (laughs) malfunction it's like all your episodes (laughs) yeah and what ends up happening is some of the Borg nanoprobes from Seven, they get fused into the mobile emitter. And so right away, like, they know something's wrong. It, like, stops working, and he starts, like, phasing in and out. You know, they download him back into the ship's computer, and then they take the mobile emitter off to the side. And, like, Belana Torres, who's the ship's engineer, who's, like, this female, like, half Klingon character who's a who's a cool character she so she's trying to figure out what's going on with the submitter well it starts like growing and changing and so the the borg nanoprobes are like assimilating the 29th century technology and at one point there's some random ensign like walking by and this thing <laughs> shoots out and like sucks blood out of them or something like that and it, it basically is, it's creating a Borg drone that's, like, extremely advanced. And so when they figure out what's happening, everybody's freaking out because they're like, oh my gosh, you know, what do we do? Do we destroy this thing? Um, it could be dangerous. And the doctor's like, no, I want my mobile emitter back. And, you know, <laughs> so there's, like, all this stuff going on. And eventually Janeway, again, makes a hard decision. She's like, all right. We're going to give this guy a chance. And so she's like, allow him to come to maturity. And she assigns seven to kind of be like his guide and explain to him about individuality and like who he is and blah, blah, blah. And at first they try to like not tell him about the Borg because they're like afraid. They don't want him to join the collective and alert the collective as to where they are and they disable his like beacon or whatever. He he actually ends up being like a really cool dude. Yeah, but that is a very like it's a scary thought. Oh yeah. For all the Borg to suddenly have like technology that's hundreds of years in the future. Right. That that, that was the fear. That that they would assimilate him and then they would become like unstoppable. Like super Borg. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if uh, if a country like in the fifteen hundreds suddenly had our technology now? They'd be unstoppable. Exactly. And so they eventually determine, well, it's the right thing to do is to give him a chance. And so he ends up being like a really good guy. And, uh, you know, they all explain to him what the deal is. The Borg are evil. What ends up happening is there's a second transceiver that like the drone takes a name. He calls himself one. And so there's a second transceiver that they didn't know about that activates all by itself and the Borg eventually come and they find Voyager and naturally they want this drone, right? It's really cool. Like there's this moment where like one decides that he's going to fight the Borg and he has like a transporter like built inside of him and he has like these awesome shields. 
he has all these advanced weaponry and he like upgrades voyager a little bit and then he kind of like beams over to the borg ship and he basically just takes out the entire cube like all by himself and like the cube explodes and then they find him like he's still alive but barely he's like floating in space and he's got like the shielding around him and they bring him back onto the ship and they try to like save him but he like won't drop his shield so that they can save him. Mm. And again, it was like a real touching moment where, you know, he's kind of like, you got to let me die because if they know I'm out here, they're going to keep trying to find you and Voyager will be at risk. And so he ends up just dying. And, Mm. you know, the doctor's actually happy because then he gets his mobile emitter back. It was, that's an awesome episode. Yep. The, my second episode is called Blink of an Eye, and the basic premise of this is the Voyager gets trapped in the orbit of a planet, but the planet's uh, the rate at which time passes for the planet is different than the rate at which it's passing for them. And it's like, um, the reason it's called Blink of an Eye is because life on that planet is whizzing by, Right. it, it would seem, from Voyager's perspective, you know, it, it might just be a, a matter of hours or days. And for the planet, it's like generations and epochs and eras. It's like forever. Yeah, I, I love so, this episode. Yeah, th- this is always been, this is the first one that I thought of when when I was thinking, what am I going to pick? Uh, yeah, but this is season six. So it's kind of late in the series. Episode 12 Voyager gets stuck there and. The people on the planet, they're like cavemen, right? And they look up in the sky and this new like light appears. Right. <laughs> and they don't know what it is. So they automatically, it's like, this is a god. And they start worshiping it and giving offerings to it. Meanwhile, Voyager, they're just like, we're stuck up here. What's going on? They have no idea. Mm-hmm. But as time go, goes by, the people develop entire religions and cults and you know ideas about what this thing is. Voyager looks at it as as sort of a chance to watch a culture develop through its entire history, and they don't realize that they're actually they've become a god and that they've they've broken the number one rule of all of Star Trek and Star Trek, sorry, and the Federation is the prime directive: you don't interfere with another culture as it's developing until they also have warp technology and they know about other species, you don't do it. Well, too late. They, they didn't know they had done it until that culture develops to where they're, they're starting to have radio transmissions. Mm-hmm. And Voyager picks up on Of course, when Voyager first hears them, because of the time differential, it's just this little... <laughs> they don't know what it is, but they slow it down and they, they like clean it up and they hear it and they're like, oh, crap. They're like worshipping us. <laughs> so, so they send the doctor down there to live with them for a while, you know, so, you know, t- since he can live a very long time, he's a hologram. They send him down there for a little bit um, for a split second. They beam him down and then beam him back up. And he comes back and he's like lived a lifetime. He's had, you know, he's raised kids and all these things. And he really understands the culture. Yes. Yeah, stop right there. Because there's an implication that, that he is had made a, that he yeah. actually had a physical child. <laughs> yeah, they just say that in, kind of in passing, and he's emotional about it. But which is impossible. It's impossible. Well, then it, it it goes further where the culture now develops uh, like telescopes and ways of seeing it, and they re- they they look at it and they they realize it's some sort of ship, mm-hmm. and so they call it the sky ship. 
they they make little dolls and the skyship friends dolls and oh, like, yeah, the like whole toys culture. and yeah <laughs> everything is still wrapped the entire history of this species is wrapped up in voyager getting trapped there mm-hmm. it's kind of weird in a blink of an eye and uh then then they start perceiving it as potentially a threat like why has this thing been watching us and they develop a space program to go intercept it and eventually try to even attack it and so now Voyager realizes they have a timetable. If they don't do something quick, this, this group is going to be able to develop weapons that will destroy them, and it'll happen fast. So they basically capture one of their guys. They capture one of the, the uh, astronauts, and they teach them and show them what it's really about, and they have to figure out a way to send him back to tell them that they're not enemies. Right. Figure out a way to break free. The people from the planet, they fly up there and somehow they're able to get on Voyager. But when they get on initially, like it looks like everybody's frozen. Right. Because right. they're moving yeah. so fast and Voyager's moving so slow. And then something happens where like he's able to like phase into their time. His body starts adjusting to it. Right. It's like painful. Right. And so he like kind of appears on the ship and they're like, what the heck? And then they take him to sick bay. And like you said, they like explain what's going on. That's right. And then they send him back. And then and then do you want to tell what happens at the end? Well, do we do we want to tell the I've been spoiling like every episode. If you want to spoil it, you can. Okay, so they send this guy (laughs) back. Right. And he's like a young guy when they send him back and like. You know, a few minutes go by and then like the guy comes back and he's like 50 years older, but he's Mm. piloting these like advanced spaceship. The two of them fly up on either side of Voyager and like these tractor beams come and they pull Voyager out of whatever the thing that they're stuck in. And so they have more advanced technology now than Voyager. Yeah. Wow. Uh, But it I think that it's. Very unique uh, concept to watch an entire history mm-hmm. uh, like the game Civilization um, unfold from primitive to spacefaring in, in a blink of an eye. Yeah. Um, and there's this one area, like kind of by a hillside, that, that's overlooking a, like a valley that, that's, that they keep revisiting that throughout time. Mm-hmm. It's the very first spot where Voyager's ever seen. And then it's like one of the last scenes also where now it overlooks this gigantic city. Right. Um, uh, it's, it's very poignant, you know, just like a lot of these episodes. Very cool. All right. So now my last episode is again from season five. And this is episode 11. And it's called Latent Image. And so this is a uh, doctor episode. And it kind of starts out where he's like doing some kind of a checkup on on Harry Kim, who you mentioned before is the ensign. He's a, he's the ops officer. Poor guy is an ensign for the entire seven years. <laughs> never gets <laughs> never gets promoted. <laughs> so he's yeah. doing this examination, and he like realizes that Harry Kim had some kind of surgery like a couple years ago, and it was so like complex that. You know, the doctor was the only one that could have done it, and he doesn't have any memory of doing the surgery. And, you know, everybody's very, like, kind of draws attention away from it. They're not, like, answering any questions. And, you know, the doctor is very curious, and, you know, he likes to, like, solve mysteries. And and so, you know, doctor kind of 
eventually uncovers there was an event that had occurred a few years ago where Harry Kim and this other ensign, and I believe her name was Ensign Jatal. Yeah. And they went on some kind of away mission. They got attacked. And, you know, the doctor, basically, he only had time enough to save one of them. And so he ends up picking Harry Kim and he saves him by doing this, you know, procedure. But as a result, the other ensign dies. And so in the original kind of story, the doctor, like, kind of freaks out because he's got like you know his programming tells him that he has to be totally impartial you know in in his duties as a doctor and he like feels so guilty that he picked harry kim because you know he knows harry kim better and considers him a friend and he feels like he did this horrible thing by picking him and so what ends up happening is like the doctor's program gets stuck in this like feedback loop where he basically like has a mental breakdown and it gets so bad that they actually have to shut him down and they decide to go in and erase his memory of all that stuff ever happening and they try to cover it up but you know the doctor ends up figuring it out and so once he hears what happened the thing starts happening again where he starts freaking out and having the mental breakdown. And so Janeway's like, okay, now, you know, what do we do? Do we take away his memory again? And it's actually seven of nine that kind of steps up and is like, you know what? This is wrong. You shouldn't do this. You know, the doctor is like a sentient being. He has rights. You can't just go in there and mess with his brain like that. And she eventually convinces you know, Janeway to kind of like just let him get try to fight through it at the risk that his program will completely explode and they'll never they won't have him anymore. They won't have a doctor, you know, to treat the crew. So Jane was trying to balance, you know, the safety of the crew versus the doctor's individual rights. And in the end, she allows him to kind of work it out. And there's a very like sweet kind of tender scene in the end where the doctor's like in the holodeck and Janeway physically stays with him for Mm. like they imply it's like a long time like maybe weeks or months and she's just (laughs) sitting in this like armchair while the doctor's pacing around and he's like talking in circles and, and, and finally he gets through it you know, and in the end of it, it's implied that he's advanced beyond like his program and he actually is able to live with the fact of what happened and, and he ends up being OK. But I always thought it was very sweet that Gene Way kind of sat there with them, like almost like yeah, as a, very frustrating. Yeah. And she's sitting there and she's like got her hand on her face and she's just like, oh, my gosh. And she she always does this thing when she's frustrated where she grabs the bridge of her nose. <laughs> And, yeah. and just like through the whole show, this is her way as an actress, I guess, of showing frustration. Yeah. Right. But she's definitely doing that. Just in this empty holodeck, they're both just sitting on a chair. And right. it's like you said, they've been there God knows how many days. <laughs> well, with him just saying over and over again, I could have chose I could have right. saved her. Why did I choose him? I could have saved her. Yeah. But there's nothing better about her. Yeah. Right. It's just constant like like if he was a human, we'd be just like, shut the heck up. Right. Just get over it. 
And she just sits there and just listens. And it's almost like there's something very like motherly about the whole thing, how how she was with him. And then eventually he's okay. And, you know, and she kind of gets up and leaves and that's the end of the episode. And then the next episode, he's back to normal. Oh yeah. That is a fantastic episode. Yeah. Uh, you, I liked all three of your picks. Very, uh, very I, deep character. Like yeah. you said, very much like Measure of a Man. Uh, my final pick, I, I liked it because I feel like it, it was late in season seven. It was season seven, episode 10, very near the end of the whole show. And what they did is they had Voyager. It's, it's out in space. It gets caught in this rift. And it, it strikes the warp core. You know, it's all Star Trek <laughs> mumbo jumbo. It's a temporal basic, anomaly. <laughs> the basic idea is that the ship gets broken up into 37 different time periods. Yeah, all things yeah. that have happened through the history of the show. So, I mean, you've got a hundred, it's the 157th episode. So 156 previous episodes of potential time periods that it could be. And so Chakotay, though... He is particularly affected by this. He gets zapped, at least, and he ends up in sickbay, and the doctor injects him with a chronoton serum. Now, chronotons, with the word chrono, like chrono trigger, whatever, they ha- it has to do with time. And so, by being injected with this serum, he is no longer affected by the time periods. So, he can uh, effectively, unlike anyone else, he can walk through the ship and retain the memories. If someone else walked in like in a certain corridor, they would just disappear mm-hmm. because they're no longer in that time period. But he's able to pass through it. And the doctor also gives him like an injector that has more of this serum. So he can inject other people and bring them along with him. So he he's walking through the ship and he encounters um at one point he encounters uh this rebellion that happened in season two when the Kazon that we talked about earlier take control of the ship and they potentially uh, are they're going to fly away and leave Voyager stranded and have the ship well he walks in on this he's not supposed to be there right. the, another time he walks into an area where Voyager is still back in the alpha quadrant ready to leave it's all brand new and the maquis are still the enemy and when Chakotay shows up he was the leader of the maquis what the heck is he doing here and they're like you know putting guns on him or phasers on him and they want to arrest him mm-hmm. so there's all these different uh, time periods. Well, he injects Janeway with the serum, the old Janeway from way back then, before any of these other things have happened. And she's having trouble believing it's even possible. You know, what, how could this Chakotay, who I'm chasing, board the ship and he's actually my first officer? But he manages to convince her. Um, some of the things that she sees, he manages to convince her that, no, I, I, I'm telling you the truth. But the problem is she's seeing things that she's not supposed to see yet. She's seeing time periods when the ship was on the verge of destruction or when crew members died. And she starts looking at this whole thing like, you know, she could go back and stop it from happening. She could just not go into the Delta Quadrant, not follow the Maquis at all. So it's this kind of complex uh, a way of looking back at the entire show and bring back all kinds of nods to times when this macro virus, this giant virus was attacking the ship in an earlier episode or, mm-hmm. or this time period called the year of hell when Voyager should have, everyone should have died. You know, there's all these different vignettes and nuances and memories from the entire history of the show. Yeah. And, um, it's interesting because at the end, they, they kind of allude to the idea that Janeway did retain those memories. She did know. 
and that she still chose to do things exactly the same way. Hmm. How are they able to bring it all back? Well, what they what they realized they had to do was take that serum. And Voyager was a special ship. It attempted oh, the to have packs. yeah new yes. technology by actually having a biological component uh, called gel packs that were part of. It wasn't just the ship wasn't just a machine. It had biological components, and so they managed to inject all the gel packs, the bio neural gel packs. Yes, that's and, that's what they were. and uh, and it does restore the ship. But it's a crazy adventure along the way, and. Uh, Again, a, a very good reflective episode. It's kind of hard to do in a show, but Star Trek can has the ability to do it. That was a fantastic episode. A good one to so kind many. Of, yeah, a good one to kind of end on because it really it touches upon so many time periods like yeah. throughout the, the whole series they, and, they encounter seven of nine when she's still a borg just like yeah you know helping them out like a lot of the episodes like not not all all the episodes but a lot of the things we even talked about are kind of referenced yeah there there was a, yeah. a, a baby that was actually born on the ship like the first baby born since they're stranded in the delta quadrant right but they actually encounter her when she's like uh she's like in her 20s or something and now she's a crew member and and she actually helps come up with a solution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So strange. You got Borg seven of nine and little Naomi. Uh, what's her name? Naomi Naomi Wildman. She's all grown up, and oh, she's yeah. and you have like all these different time periods. Janeway from the beginning, and what a great episode. Yep. So many, and th- th- I, honestly, I could think of of you know a dozen more. Yeah. You know, and one of the coolest things, like I know uh, our friend uh, Curtis from uh, Girlfriend Versus, he's done a, a series called Boyfriend Boldly Goes. Mm-hmm. And what really cracked me up is he reviewed season three of Next Generation. He starts it off and it's like before we started talking about this, he w- had no interest in Star Trek, um, but he decided to give it a chance on our recommendation. And so this episode, uh, Boyfriend Bo- Boldly Goes, season three, starts off. He's sitting there. He's grown a beard like Riker. All behind him, there's all this Star Trek stuff. <laughs> and, and all, he, he, you know, it's just dead silence for a minute. And then he just says, I think I may have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I hope that, you know, you guys listening, that you'll take some of our advice because lo- I've heard that a few times now. People have given it a chance and they've discovered a fantastic show. They're all on Netflix, people. Yes, they are. <laughs> Just go look them up. Watch a couple. You'll be hooked. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that was that was great, dude. Um, and I, I think we have just enough time left to do a retro pick. I think I feel one back there. Yep. Ah, here's a good one. Retro pick. Okay, well, I'm going to go first. I'm going to talk about a game that I did not even know existed until recently. I don't know if I talked about this. I went to this, like, conference for work, and I went to uh, Oklahoma City, and they have a chain of stores that are called Vintage Stock. And I had heard about it already from GameStraight81 because, you know, he travels a lot for his work. And, and he had recommended that as being like a really good chain. It's kind of like a retro store, but they just don't have video games. They also have like old toys and like music and movies. So it's like everything vintage, right? Rad. Yeah. So I went there and, you know, I didn't 
find a lot of great deals, um, but I did end up picking up this game uh, called Galaga Destination Earth. It's for the PlayStation 1, and it was published by Hasbro Interactive. Let's see, October 2000. I had no idea this existed. I never heard of it. Now, I have a special place in my heart for Galaga because it's my dad's favorite arcade game. So I kind of had set out to get all the different versions of Galaga. And and this one, for some reason, it slipped through the cracks. Well, I saw it there at the vintage stock and I picked it up complete for 10 bucks. And I just love, love this game because it takes Galaga and it makes it better. Um, and, and what it does is it, there's there's nine stages. Each stage has like different waves, okay? And like within the waves, it kind of will change the the viewpoint of your ship. And so like the first one is called Gamma, and that's like your traditional Galaga. You know, your ship is at the bottom and you're shooting up at the insect-like ships that are coming down. You know, as as you move to the next wave, it'll shift to another one, which is called the Delta, uh, Delta mode or whatever. And with that, it turns into like a side scroller. So your your ship actually now you're you're doing like like a Gradius type type view where you're going from you know left to right and you're you know you go up and down and. You're shooting the ships in, the, in that way. And then there's a third one where it's actually like a first-person mode where you it shifts again, and now you're in the cockpit, and you're flying through, like there's asteroids coming at you, and enemies are weaving around. And then at the end of the stage, you fight like a boss. <laughs> um, and it was just awesome. And, and you know, there, you pick up power-ups, you know, you have like, bombs that you can like smart bombs that you can do and uh they incorporate the whole business about the tractor beam right like so still like one of your ships if it gets stuck in a tractor beam you can like release it and then it comes back and then you kind of have like two ships there's another thing that you can do where there's a power up there's a tractor beam power up where you can get it and in within a certain amount of time you can actually capture an alien ship and make it like your second ship oh wow and take take the alien ship over and so that way you have two ships and you know you're shooting like double the shot it's very good the music is cool it's like very like techno and you know it runs really smooth it looks really good uh so i just checked on ebay i mean i paid 10 for it but you can get it cheaper. Yeah, it came out uh, also for Windows and the Game Boy Color. But as far as like a legit console, the PlayStation was the only one that had it. Uh, my choice here is a game. I don't know if many people have heard of it. I certainly hadn't heard of it. It's called Legend of Hero Tom or Tonma, T-O-N-M-A. And um, this game originally was actually an arcade game. And it's a very pretty rare arcade game. I think it's like I saw one website said it was like in the uh, top 10 percent of rare arcade games. 
but it also came out on the PC Engine in Japan and, and Europe. And uh, on the TurboGrafx-16, it was a very re- like late release. It was 1993. So TurboGrafx is like 89, early 90s, and it didn't do all that great, right? So uh, near the end of its life, The Legend of Hirotanma came out. Now, this game is very, I feel like it's very unique and very fun. It has, in a sense, it kind of reminds me of Ghouls and Ghosts or Ghosts and Goblins where you have one hit, one kill. I mean, Ghosts and Goblins and stuff, you have, you know, sometimes more than one hit. You lose your armor or whatever. But in this, it's one hit, you're dead. But, you know, it has an overworld sort of that map that you have in Ghosts and Goblins where it's showing you your final, where you're ultimately heading. You kind of, there's little dots on the map. And it's a side-scrolling platformer um, that's in some ways difficult. But where it's different is that instead of just throwing like a spear, you have like, uh, it's almost like a shooter, a rapid-fire fireball that you're shooting. And as the level progresses, you have to find keys to unlock doors. Um, You're jumping on platforms, but you find power-ups. So your initial (laughs) fireball ends up becoming like, you know, a double fireball or uh, a fireball that waves up and down and sweeps across the screen. And you're firing rapidly. It's a turbo graphics game. So you've got like, you know, uh, crank up the turbo and you're <laughs> shooting nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a hybrid between a platformer and a shoot 'em up. <laughs> a very unique concept. The graphics are very vibrant and cartoony. Your sprite is really big. I just had a lot of fun with it. Uh, so I played it with my son for several hours the other day. It was very, very cool. Uh, there aren't a lot of games that try to mix it. It, it was made by Irem, who made R Type. So they know what they're doing in terms of shooters. But just imagine shooter plus Super Ghouls and Ghosts or Super, you know, Ghosts and Goblins or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine those two in some sort of hybrid form and you get sort of an idea. Now, the downside is that the American release of this, uh, I've seen it go anywhere from 3 to $450 Jeez. for just the American Turbo Graphics card. Uh, a lot of times that's complete. I don't know what just the card would be, but probably uh, several hundred. You can get the PC Engine or Japanese version, which is what I did. And I think I only spent about $30 shipped from Japan. And I have the little converter. Um, so again, you're probably thinking, crap, I can't play this. Well, fortunately, it was also released for the virtual console. So if you have a Wii, you are able to get the game for, uh, I don't know what their pricing is, but you know, probably less than $10. Like some, you know, some of the turbo graphic schemes like are not exactly on par with like Genesis or Super Nintendo, but I, I would say this one definitely is. Well, yeah, again, in, it in terms of graphics and stuff, the guy's face is kind of funny. He's got a cape. Kind of looks like a little hobbit jumping around. <laughs> well, yeah, he's, he's got a big head. Yeah, a big head and a little body, or like I a definitely... Cabbage Patch doll. Oh gosh, like now Jonathan. Like Jonathan now. <laughs> but he has hair, so it's you know why shooting those fireballs, this tight underwear, <laughs> driving crazy. But yeah, I'm watching him fight a dragon. This looks like the stage two boss. So pretty cool. And and so where did you get this from? I bought it on eBay from a, a awesome dude in Japan. He was so super friendly. Like he just kept, you know, on eBay you don't have to message anyone. They bought right. it send it he was like i you know i hope you enjoy it just like very very cool um but and i even though it was from japan i got it within like within two weeks it was mm-hmm, here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, very very fun game nice i hope you people can track it down but anyway yeah 
that's my pick. So uh, we just want to thank you guys, as always, for listening. I, I am so um, just in awe and humbled by the support and the way you guys listen and um, interact with us. And I just hope that, that continues. I, I hope that you guys will continue to send us audio questions. I know that a lot of you have listened and never have sent us a question. Please do. Please do. We, we love interacting with you and hearing what you guys have to say. So, yes, everybody, once again, uh, just a friendly reminder that we'd love to have you subscribe to us on YouTube, uh, Retro Rejects Podcast. We are at 850 exactly, so we would love to get to 1,000. That's our life goal. Uh, If we could get to 1,000 on the YouTube channel, which you can get our episode trailers and also exclusive content uh go ahead and also follow us on twitter that's another way you can get notified when there's a new episode or a new video so now it's after one o'clock i'm very tired i need to get up at like seven ish to go to jury duty all right (laughs) so good night everybody good night Certain segments are, I feel, are going really long, like maybe too long. Uh, like which ones? Well, I mean, a lot of it was my fault, I feel. I really, listening back, I really wish you would cut more of me out. <laughs> really? Yeah. So you wanted me to cut more of you out? I did. See, uh, see... When I cut you out, you yell at me and say that I cut you out. <laughs> and now, you, then I leave you in and then you tell me to take you out. So, I can't win here. No, you can't. <laughs> well, no, what you have to do is read my mind and only cut out the parts that I would want you to. And also, I put in, like, lots of, like, laughter after you made jokes about... Oh, I did notice that, I went that, out of actually. my way, man. Yeah. <laughs> And I li- and listening back to you, I'm like, man, I really seem like a jerk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you owed me a few jerky comp. No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>